Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. The last couple of weeks, we've taken a break from this series that we're in. This series is called The Story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. We had the day of Pentecost, and we talked about some things that had to do with the Pentecost for two weeks, and then last week was Father's Day, and Pastor Jan did a great job preaching for Father's Day. But today, we're getting back into this series on the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And today, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5, so I know many of you have already turned there. I want to start, as I often do, by asking a question to get us thinking along the lines of what God wants to, I believe, speak to our hearts and to challenge and encourage us. And here's the question. How many of you like change? I don't see any hands at all. I'm sure that... Okay, there's some back there. There's some back there. There's some back there. Yeah. I heard this quote. I love this. The only person who likes change is a baby with a wet diaper. I can imagine if you were a baby with a wet diaper, you would like a change. But to be real honest, when we think of liking change, we almost always think of the negative side. I like things the way they are. This is the way I want them. I don't want them changed. But to be honest with you, all of us don't like change, but yet all of us do like change. It depends on what's being changed, right? I mean, if there's something that isn't the way you want it to be, you'd like to have it changed, right? And if it's changed, you're happy. And if there's something that you like just the way it is, and it gets changed, you're unhappy. So in a very real way, we both both like change and don't like change. Have you discovered, like I have, that being unwilling to change can sometimes cause a lot of problems? You see it in every area of life. You see it in the area of business. There are companies that at one time were very, very strong, powerful, making a lot of money, doing a lot of good things that don't even exist anymore because they weren't willing to change based on what was going on in their industry. You see it in relationships. When there isn't flexibility, when there isn't compromise, when there isn't a willingness to work with the other person, whether you're talking about a spouse or a parent or a child or a friend or a coworker, and you're not willing to change some things, it can cause problems in relationships. It can lead to the end of relationships. You can even see problems with not being willing to change in your health. You find out you got a certain situation, certain symptoms, certain condition in your body. And if you would just change this, this, and this, it would get better or be eliminated. But I don't want to change that. I like eating that kind of stuff. I like sitting on the couch instead of going out for a run or whatever we decide to do for, you know, we've got to be willing to change. Unfortunately, there's been a lot of problems in churches because of an unwillingness to change. Unwillingness to change can cause a lot of problems. The title of my message and the theme that I think God wants to speak to us about today is don't be inflexible. Don't be inflexible. In other words, I could have made it positive and say be flexible, but I titled don't be inflexible. 
In the story we're going to look at today, just a couple of verses from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, we are going to see a group of people who are not flexible at all. And they're good people. But because of their inflexibility, it kept them from recognizing who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And because of that, it led them to reject him Everything he did, everything he said, the authority that he had, and that rejection led to them seeing him put to death because they were the leaders of the nation and therefore the nation itself under their leadership rejected him. There were many people who did accept Jesus, who did recognize who he was, who did welcome his influence in their life, but the leaders and those under their leadership rejected him. And therefore, Jesus was crucified. Eventually, that led to the destruction of their nation. And unless they changed their hearts and their lives, it led to a terrible situation for their eternal existence. We're not going to focus so much on that. It's on the fact that we want to learn from this story about not being inflexible. Don't be inflexible. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. We're just going to read straight through it. Then we're going to jump in, talk about what is going on here, who's saying what, what do they mean by that, and then we'll talk about how it applies to our lives, okay? So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33, it says, And they, who's this they? This they are the religious leaders. If you read earlier in the chapter, you see it mentions specifically the Pharisees and the scribes which were basically the Bible scholars of their day. And some Pharisees were scribes, some scribes were Pharisees, but they weren't mutually exclusive. They were two groups that overlapped a little bit, okay? But the Pharisees were the righteous people, the people that had this passion. I want to do what God says. I want to live according to God's word. And as we're going to see in a little bit, they had all kinds of ideas about what God meant by what his word that went way beyond what God meant by what his word said. So we got these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these scribes, and it says, and they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now, how many of you know and understand exactly what Jesus is talking about here? I'm sure there are some of you because you've known the Lord for a long time. You've studied his word and you know what he's talking about. But these are some of his sayings that are not near as easy to understand as some of the other things that Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said some things that are pretty clear. You know, treat other people the way you would like to be treated and uh, several other things. But these are among some of his sayings that we have to dig into a little bit deeper to understand what he's trying to say here. So here's the background to this story. 
the religious leaders, the they in the story, are very, very upset with Jesus for a number of reasons. And some of them have to do with stories that we've already looked at in this series. And if you've missed any of the previous messages, you can go watch them or listen to them online. But back several weeks ago, we looked at a story in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26, where Jesus had pronounced a man's sins forgiven. That really upset the religious leaders. The story in a nutshell is Jesus is teaching in a home and so many people have heard about they've gathered together. The home is packed. The courtyard is packed. People are looking in through the doors and the windows. You can't get anywhere close. And these guys come carrying their friend. Their friend is paralyzed. He's on a mat. They want Jesus to touch him and heal him and they can't even get close. Long story short, they find a way to the roof. They open up a hole in the roof. They lower the man down to Jesus so he can be healed. And Jesus speaks to the man. And rather than say, be healed, he says, your sins are forgiven. Because that was the most basic need he had. And the religious leaders are there checking Jesus out. They've been hearing the rumors. They've been hearing the stories. They've got to figure out what this guy's all about. And it says that in their hearts, in their minds, they're thinking, he can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. And that's the point. They were right. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is, was, always has been, always will be God. And he had come to this earth in the flesh. And he had seen the faith in the man's heart and had said, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking and saying. He says, why do you say that? He, he basically says, to prove that I have the ability to forgive sins. He says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or you're healed. And, and he isn't really literally saying which is easier to say. He says, which one's easier to prove? Because you can say your sins are forgiven, but there's nothing to see. Did it really happen? I don't know. It's easier to say that. But he says, to show that I do have the authority to forgive sins, he says, get up and walk. And this man who had been paralyzed got up, carried his mat, and walked away. Which showed that Jesus did have the authority to heal and the authority to forgive sins. But that really upset the religious leaders. This broke all their preconceived ideas about what God does and how he does it and who this man might be. There are people already wondering, is this the Messiah? Is this the one that God is going to send? And the religious leaders have already started making up their mind, no, he is not. He's a troublemaker. we got to do something about him. So they're upset because he pronounced the man's sins forgiven and they rejected his authority because he claimed to do what only God could do. They're also upset because he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. These religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, but also the scribes, they were so holy that they could not be around anything or anybody else that was not as holy as they were. They thought of themselves as being in a level above everybody else. They were above all the common people and definitely above all the sinners. And even below the sinners were the tax collectors. The tax collectors were considered the worst of sinners because they had joined together with the Roman oppressors to collect unjust taxes and they would use their authority and their ability to collect taxes to extort the people and collect more than was needed because that's how they made a profit and so they were looked at as traitors to their own people and collaborators with the foreign government who was oppressing them and in the story just before this one Jesus had called a tax collector to be one of his disciples in Luke his name is Levi his other name is Matthew he ends up writing the gospel of Matthew 
And once Matthew says, I'm going to follow Jesus, he leaves everything behind. He leaves a lucrative occupation. He leaves everything he's ever known behind to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. But he's got a lot of friends that he wants to get to know Jesus. So he throws a big party for all the other tax collector friends he has and all these other sinners. And Jesus goes to this big dinner and the Pharisees are upset because Jesus is hanging out with sinners. You don't do that. Holy people don't do that. They use their self-righteousness to exclude and look down on other people. And then another reason they didn't like Jesus and were really upset with him, and it's, it starts talking about this in this passage, is that Jesus didn't keep all of their rules. Jesus didn't keep all of their rules. Now, please understand, Jesus always has been God, always will be God, was God while he was here on the earth. He just came and became man. He was God and man. And while he was here on earth, and obviously before and after, Jesus always did what was right and good and true and in in, uh, conformity to God's will, God's plan, and God's word. He never broke God's law. He never did anything that was sin. The Bible says he was without sin. But these religious leaders had developed their own rules and traditions And sometimes for very, very good reason. They said, God says, don't do this. I want to make sure I don't do this. So I'm going to make sure I don't do this, which is even more. Okay? And and we do that too. And that can be very, very helpful. It can be very, very... I'll just give you a real simple example of a rule that I have that's not in the Bible, but it's, it's something I have in my life to just help me live the life I believe God wants me to live. And that is, you know, God wants us to be faithful to our spouse. And so I've committed myself to do that. And as a pastor, there are times that people want to meet with me, but I have a rule for my life that I will not meet alone with another female. Other than my wife, you know, or a family member, whatever. If there's a female that wants to come meet with me, she needs to bring somebody else with her. My wife's got to be there. Now, that's not in the Bible. I don't require that of others. To me, that's just wisdom for me. Okay. Well, the Pharisees had all kinds of rules like that. That went way beyond. I mean, that's actually, to me, kind of wisdom, the rule I just explained to you. But they had all kinds of laws that went way beyond God's rules and laws. And they didn't just have them for themselves. They said everybody else should obey these too. Okay? But sometimes it got inconvenient to keep their rules and laws. And sometimes it became inconvenient to keep God's rules and laws. And so they would create loopholes. You know what it is when you've got a rule or a law that you're supposed to keep and then you find a way to get around it? You become a hypocrite. So these religious leaders were also known for their hypocrisy. An example is that in God's rules for that day, on the Sabbath, you could only travel so far because it was supposed to be a day of rest, only so far from your home. So they developed this rule. This is actually a rule, a thing that they had developed. It's on the books. That they would, the day before, they would take something from their home. They would go that distance and they would set it on the ground there, maybe hide it behind a rock or whatever. So that on the Sabbath, they didn't take a trip. They would go to that place that was at the limit of the distance, but there was something from their house. They said, oh, this must still be my home. So I can still go further. Now, we all laugh and stuff like that, but do we ever work real hard to try to find loopholes to justify why we can skirt around the edges of rules, regulations, things in our life? We can have the tendency to do the same thing. But Jesus didn't keep all of their rules. 
He did everything God wanted him to do, everything God had laid out in his word, but he didn't keep their rules. That really ticked them off. Their religious traditions were more important to them than what God was doing. And that's what led to this question about, well, you know, um, the disciples of John fast, but the religious leaders didn't like John either, but they knew that Jesus did. They were related. John prepared the way for Jesus. You know what? The disciples of John fast often. Our disciples, talking about the Pharisees, they fast often, but you guys don't. You just eat and drink like normal. Why is that? Jesus wasn't keeping their rules. So the summary of this situation we see in this story, and we're going to see all through the story of Jesus' life, is that Jesus came to deliver and to heal and to save people. But the religious leaders were more concerned about their traditions and their rules. So that's the background. Let's, let's take a look at what was said and what was done here and see how that all fits together. All right. As I mentioned, it all starts out here when it says that they said the disciples of John, you know, they fast often. Our disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, they do, but you guys just go through life like normal. You eat, you drink, you know, you, you don't seem to fast. Now, now please understand Jesus was not against fasting. We know that Jesus went through 40 days of fasting at the beginning of his ministry. It's the only fast we have recorded of him, but I would assume that he may have fasted at other times. But it obviously was not as important to him as it was to them. Well, how important was it to God? Well, here's a trivia question. According to God's word, how often were God's people supposed to fast? One day a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, they fasted other times. It's illustrated. It's a good practice. It's a good, you know, and we can't dig into the reasons for fasting other than the fact that it was usually at a time when you really needed to seek God. It could be for mourning. It could be for repentance for sin. It could be for God, we need something to change in our life. You know, just really seeking after God and having kind of a repentant, humbled uh, attitude. And, and all that is great. But this is where, again, example of the religious leaders said, well, God says we should fast once a year. That means it must be pretty good. So we need to make a rule that you got to fast twice a week. And so they did. The religious leaders twi- fasted twice a week. John's disciples fasted. We don't know exactly why, other than the fact that John preached about repentance, about how we need to repent of our sins, be sorrowful, for, be humble before God. And that certainly goes along with the purpose of fasting. So I can imagine that, you know, John and his disciples would fast as they were fasting for the nation of Israel, as they were uh, leading other people to fast in, in repentance of their sins. But it's when they ask Jesus this question, he makes this statement, he says, why would you make wedding guests fast? Okay, the bridegroom is here. You know, one day the bridegroom's going to be gone, then there'll be a reason to fast and they will fast. Well, what did he mean by that? Well, he's given kind of a word picture here. He said, how many of you have ever gone to a wedding and a wedding reception where they served a lavish meal and you said, oh, by the way, I'm not eating today, I'm fasting. Now, that could have happened. I mean, if you were actually, you know, in a time with God that you felt like you were supposed to fast and it happened to fall that you were going to this wedding that you may have done that. But that's not the normal thing, right? You got a wedding celebration. This is a time to rejoice. This is why a lavish meal has been provided, if one has. And you need to partake. You need to enjoy. This is not a time to to be sorrowful. This is not a time to be introspective. This is a time to celebrate with the bride and groom. In their culture... Wedding feasts lasted for a week. 
the bride and the groom were king and queen for the week and they just had a wonderful time celebrating this new couple and their marriage. And Jesus is saying, listen, just like a wedding feast, it's a time of celebration. He's saying, you know, I have come. Jesus had come into the earth. God was doing and beginning brand new stuff to institute the kingdom of God. People were being healed. People were being delivered. The dead were being raised. God was doing a new work. And he says, it's not a time to mourn. It's not a time to fast. He says, eventually the bridegroom will be taken away. This is kind of one of the first uh, references to the fact that something's going to happen to Jesus. And he says, that time my disciples, my followers will fast. When he was crucified, when he was buried. There's a lot of mourning, a lot of things that went on. Snow, a funeral is more like when you would fast, not a wedding feast. And then he decides to just make this point even stronger by telling these two parables here. He talks in verse 36 about having a new garment and an old garment, and the old garment has a hole or is ripped or whatever, so you want to patch it. So you got a new garment and you cut a piece out of the new garment to sew on the old garment. How many of you do that? I can think of only one situation where you might would do that, and that is if you've got that absolute favorite shirt, that favorite jacket, whatever. It's, I, I got to keep it forever, and so it's got to be repaired. You might would do that. That's not what Jesus, 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 it doesn't make any sense that you have an old garment, you got a new garment. Just get rid of the old garment. Don't try to patch the old garment with the new one. It'll ruin the new one. And when you read this in the other Gospels, um, there's something else he said here, which Luke didn't say. He says, you know, that new piece of cloth, when you wash that garment, it's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, it's going to pull away, you know, from where you sewed it onto the old garment. And so it's going to be ripped anyway. You got both of them ruined. Now, I know we got non-shrink fabrics, non-shrink fabrics today, but they didn't have them back then. So, they, you know, he says it doesn't make any sense. You ruin a new garment to fix it. Oh, it doesn't work. Just use the new garment. And then he talks about new wineskins and new wine and old wineskins. And we don't understand all that. But back then what they would do to make wineskins is they would literally use a skin, usually from a goat. They would butcher a goat and do it in such a way and harvest the meat and take out the bones and all that kind of stuff so that you had the goat skin and you would... Uh, I'm no expert. I can't tell you how they did it, but they would treat it and all that kind of stuff. And then they would sew up and seal all the openings except for one. And then you could put the grape juice that had been harvested from the grapes into that. And then you would put it aside so that it would ferment. And as the grape juice would ferment, the gases and everything in that would cause it to expand. But that wasn't a problem for the goat skin because it was a fresh skin and it was flexible. And so as the gases and the grape juice and the wine would expand, the goat skin would expand with it. He says, but if you've got an old goat skin, all that process has been fulfilled. You drank all the wine out of it. Now the goat skin has already expanded to its limit and it's dry. And if you put fresh grape juice in that and it starts fermenting and it starts expanding again, it's just going to First, that dry, inflexible, brittle goat skin, and you're going to lose the liquid that you put into it. It's sort of like 
you know, blowing up balloons for a birthday party. You blow them up, they're real flexible. You don't want to blow it up too big. You tie them all off. But let's say you had a birthday party and you're one of these really frugal part of people and you had some balloons left over. It's like, well, we're going to save these for another time. And so you untie them and you let the air out. You leave them sitting. Any of you ever do that? Yeah, I didn't think so. I've never heard of anybody doing that. I'm just making this up as I go along. So anyway, you store them in a drawer and they sit there for a couple of years. But you've seen perhaps a balloon that basically deflated and it kind of sat around and it gets kind of brittle, doesn't it? Can you imagine trying to blow that thing back up again? Not going to work. And so here's the parables that Jesus is telling. Now, I told you what he means by the parable, but what is he actually trying to say? What's the truth he's trying to communicate? In these stories, this new garment, this new wine, represents God's provision of salvation through Jesus Christ. God breaking into history, coming himself to provide salvation. And obviously that's going to be culminated when he goes to the cross and he dies to pay the price for our sins. And he's raised to new life so he can offer us new life. But in the meantime, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come and it's demonstrated by all these powerful miracles. The gospel, the good news, and it's available to everybody. Even the people that were rejected by the religious leaders. And the old garment and the old wineskin represents all these old forms of religion that are based on tradition. It doesn't represent what God has said to do in the past. It represents all the stuff that has been built onto it, that's been added to it by all the religious leaders and godly, holy people through the years. And he says they can't, you can't patch one with the other. The new thing that God is doing is not going to fit within all your rules and regulations that you've added to what God has asked of his people. The religious leaders and many of the Jews were so attached to things as they were, they had no room for the new things that God was doing. And they were clinging to their traditions and their man-made rules. In fact, verse 39 is kind of a statement of how they felt. When Jesus said, and no one after drinking old wine desires noon, for he says the old is good. He says, that's you. He says, you don't want anything new. You're happy. You're satisfied with what you got. So what was Jesus trying to communicate? The new life and the purpose that God provides through Jesus Christ would not fit into the rules, regulations, and traditions of the religious leaders. And as I said at the beginning of this message, it's so sad, but because of that, they rejected Jesus. They led the nation to reject Jesus. Their nation was eventually destroyed, conquered. And not only that, but they had lost the opportunity to experience what God had for them through Jesus Christ. Unless they repented and changed later, and we know that some of them did. When you read through the book of Acts, you find that some of the religious leaders came to their senses, recognized that God did do something through Jesus, and they became followers of Jesus themselves. I'm so glad that it's never too late. Some of us could probably give a testimony or an account in our lives where we resisted what God was doing with everything within us. But then we finally realized that was not the way to go. So how does this apply to us today? I mean, this has a very specific application to the people Jesus was talking to, to those religious leaders and their rejection of Jesus. But how does this apply to us today? I would say to you that we need to be very, very careful that we don't become like these religious leaders. 
these Pharisees. A couple weeks ago, I used this as an illustration, so some of you might remember it. I said, how many of you want to love God? And many people raised their hand. How many of you believe the Bible is God's word? Yes. How many of you want to live the life that God says we should live? A bunch of people said, yeah. How many of you believe you should pray and you should, you know, do things like go to church and whatever to grow closer to God? Yes. The Pharisees believed all those things. They just went so many steps beyond. And can I tell you that especially those of us who have had a relationship with God for a long time, it can be a very much of a temptation to become a modern-day Pharisee. In fact, back in 2011, I did a Bible study series on Wednesday night on modern-day Pharisees, and we looked at the, the five main things that we see that were wrong with the Pharisees, and we can have the same tendencies. They were proud. So, oh, I'm not proud. In fact, I'm pretty proud that I'm not proud. I say that on purpose because sometimes we can become proud that we're humble, Right? Anytime we've looked at somebody else and say, well, at least I'm not like that. Well, I certainly love God more than they do. And that may be true. I'm not saying it's wrong. But when we have that kind of attitude and mindset and we begin to look down at other people, we're battling the same spiritual pride that the Pharisees did. We see that they were hypocritical. I already talked about that. We can, you know, if we want to, we can find our way to get around things. We can in our flesh, find ourselves saying, well, this is true and that's the way you should live, but I don't really live that way myself all the time. We find that they were kind of merciless, you know? They didn't have much of a heart of compassion for other people. I tell you, I know most of you in this room, you guys have such a great heart of compassion, but I can tell you, even the people that have the most compassionate heart probably find some people that they have a hard time having compassion toward for whatever reason. We found that they were very legalistic and they were very self-righteous. So in general, this is what I think God would speak to us from this passage today. And then I'm going to give you four little sub points real quick before we wrap this all up, okay? But in general, I think God would tell us, don't let your spiritual pride, your preferences, your traditions, your knowledge, or your experiences that you already have or you've already had keep you from what God wants to do in you or through you today. Now, you might have to meditate on it to really get that. You already have a certain amount of knowledge, and I don't mean just in general, but about God and about His Word. You may have had certain experiences with God. You've got, based on those things and perhaps the way you were raised, the culture you're from, you may have certain traditions and preferences about certain things. You may have had a wonderful or a number of wonderful experiences with God in the past. And those are great. But don't let those keep you from what God wants to do in you and through you today. Because he may want to do something new. In fact, I would say he doesn't just may, that's bad ring. It isn't that he just may want to do, he does want to do something new in each of our lives every day. As we go forward, when we stop growing, when we stop experiencing a freshness and a newness in our relationship with God, something's wrong. And that's what this part of Luke's gospel is telling us. Don't get caught up in that. Don't get so bound by the things, even the good things of the past, that you miss out on God's good things in the present and God's good things in the future. And so that leads to the title, Don't Be Inflexible. Don't be inflexible. So let me just give you a couple of 
examples, a couple of real practical things that we can apply to our lives. And I, I've been praying about this myself. Lord, how does this apply to me? Okay. The first one is this. Treasure your traditions, but be open to new ideas and methods. Treasure your traditions, but be open to new ideas and methods. We all have traditions. And traditions can be very, very valuable. I mean, we have traditions about every area of life. We have traditions that we uh, participate in during holidays, right? We have our Christmas traditions, our Thanksgiving traditions, and, you know, whatever. And those can be very helpful. They can be very meaningful to help that holiday, to help that event um, really remember and appreciate what happened. And I'm talking uh, not just about traditions like getting gifts, and we all like that. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, but the, the religious, the spiritual traditions that we have. One tradition we have is that we have a Christmas Eve candlelight communion service. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to have a Christmas Eve candlelight communion service, but it's something this church has done since long before we came here uh, 17 and a half years ago, and it's a great tradition to take that time the night before we celebrate Jesus' birth just to remember why he came, and that's why we do the communion, because he came to die, and, and the candlelight that he's light of the world, and it's a great tradition. You may have certain traditions that you do at Thanksgiving. If it's important to you at Thanksgiving to not just eat good food and have a good time, but to remember that everything we have comes from God and we need to be thankful for that. I know we had a number of Thanksgiving traditions growing up, you know, where we would sit around the table and before we would eat, we'd go around the table and we had a big family. The kids are like, let's get this over with, let's eat. But we'd go around the table and everybody had to say something they were thankful for and then we would pray before we ate. So there are all kinds of really good traditions, but sometimes we can get so bound up by our traditions. That's what happened to these religious leaders. They miss out on what God was doing today. You know, God often accomplishes things in ways that he's never done before. When you look through God's word, he does establish certain traditions that his people go through. Communion is another great one. That's when Jesus gave himself. This is a tradition, and we do. We take communion every second Sunday because Jesus said to. It is a tradition. It's in the Bible. We do it. It serves a purpose to help us remember what he did on the cross. But, you know, when you look at God working and doing new things in the Bible, very seldom does he do the same thing the same way twice because God is so creative, and God is responding to that specific situation and those specific people. I want to encourage you to avoid having the mindset that's often expressed this way. I've always done it that way. Or the opposite. I've never done it that way before. As if somehow we already know the best way to do something all the time. We have nothing more to learn. We've got it all figured out. But that's a sign sometimes that we can be caught up in our traditions and be bound by our traditions. And we can be just as guilty in the church. Whatever traditions you personally have, whatever traditions we have in the church, if they serve a purpose, that's great and that's wonderful. But when we make them into rules and we make them into laws and we use them to feel proud and to look down on other people and to exclude other people, there's a problem. Let me just give you a couple of real simple examples, okay? And I don't mean, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, okay? But one example is people that say that the only Bible you can ever use is the King James Version. 
I mean, if it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. For those of you who don't know, the King James Version wasn't there when Paul was there. I had a lady in a previous church, and we had a great relationship. She was a great lady. She loved the King James Version of the Bible. And let me be very quick to say this. The King James Version of the Bible is a great translation. It's a great version. You want to use it, just use it, okay? It's great. It's fine. No problem with using it. But she was once says King James Version. It's the only version that God approves of and blah, 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 blah. And so she would tease me about it. She never made a problem about it. But one day she came up to me after church, and she says, Pastor, when are you going to start preaching from the real Bible? And she had her big King James Bible right there with her. And I said, I won't say her name, but she said, you know what, I would. But if I started preaching from the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek, I think most of the people wouldn't understand me. She never asked me about that again. (laughs) But some people, they feel that. It's a tradition that they have. And somehow they've endowed that tradition with the authority of God. What they don't understand is that the King James Version they have today has been revised Many hundreds of times over the years, it doesn't even, it's not even the, the original one that was, um, uh, that was translated. But there's nothing wrong with the King James. I'm not anti-King James. You like the King James. Use the King James. You read from it, you teach from it, you preach from it, do it. The important thing is that you can understand God's Word. That's why there are other translations where good Bible scholars have sat down and worked through as teams to translate God's Word accurately in a way that people today can understand. And not just in English, but every time the Bible is translated into a different language. Another one, which we don't battle with here, I'm not saying people don't have opinions about it, I'm just saying we don't battle with here, is that some people say, well, you know what? You can't have a really good worship time unless you only sing the hymns. And how do you know it's a hymn? Well, because it's in an old bound book. You know? We only, you know, if it's not, you, you, you don't need to be singing all these new songs and this, that, and the other. And, and there are some churches that get really uptight about that and they get really divided about that. Can I tell you, I love the old hymns. I really do. But I love most of the new songs. And I'm glad that's not an issue here. You know, we sang an old hymn today as part of our worship. We sang some newer songs. We have a mixture. Our ladies and our men's groups during the week, they love the hymns and they sing primarily hymns. And that's great. That's what they want to do. That's what they do. They enjoy it and they worship God. But then we also sing contemporary songs. But I will tell you, we don't just accept any old song that comes down there. We're going to introduce a new song. We look at the words. We look at the theology. All that kind of stuff because it's what the song means and the truths that are taught that's most important. Now I'm going to say one more and you're going to say, I wish you to stop before that one, Pastor. But that's okay. We've got all kinds of traditions that we've grown up with perhaps, cultural, whatever about what you should wear to church. Can I tell you something? There's nothing in the Bible that says, that tells you what you should wear to church. There are some people, lots of people, who like to wear their very best and get dressed up. And if that's you, I say, go for it. So many of you out there look so sharp. You look so good. But there's nothing in the Bible that says you have to get up and wear your very best clothes and be all sharp, wear a suit and tie and dress and this, that, and the other, go to church. Can I tell you that one thing that is in the Bible is that God cares a whole lot more about what's in your heart than what you wear. 
Now, I'm not telling you to come in here all raggedy stuff and all that kind of stuff. And the Bible definitely has some stuff to say about modesty and about not leading our brothers and sisters into all kinds of problems, okay? So I won't take a survey to say, how, Pastor, how many of you wish, how many of you would say, Pastor, I wish you to stop before that last example. But anyway, that being said, let's go on. Treasure your traditions, but be open to new ideas and methods. The second thing is this, treasure your knowledge of the truth, but be open to new understanding. To whatever degree you understand God's word and you've learned and you've grown, that is fantastic. That's what we're all about. We as a church exist to help people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's right from our mission statement because Jesus said, go and make disciples. And part of that is that teaching everything that Jesus had said, that's part of the Great Commission, go make disciples, baptize them, teaching them everything I've commanded you. We need to learn. We need to grow. And the more that we learn about God's word and how it applies to our life, is wonderful. If you've been around any length of time, you know I'm always talking about you need to take time every day, spend time in God's Word, praying and talking to God, developing that relationship, and we need to treasure that. And we need to treasure our understanding of God's Word, but we don't ever need to get to the point where we say, I got it all figured out. I'm not open to hearing anything else that anybody else has to say because I know it all. Now, we might not say that out loud, but sometimes that may be our attitude. Nobody has a perfect knowledge and understanding of the truth. Now, neither am I trying to say that you can't really totally understand the truth. You're just kind of grasping in the dark. No, there is so much that is totally clear in God's Word, and that's significantly important. But sometimes we can get so dogmatic about what we think we know. I ask you a question. You may not want to respond to this. Have you ever been wrong when you just knew you were right? Happens to me all the time. Not so much about biblical things because I'm not going to say something until I've really studied it and really feel like I've got a handle on it. And if I'm not sure, I'll tell you. There's been times I've told you, I'm not real sure about this. This is just my opinion, whatever. But I'm learning as I get older to not be so dogmatic about things that I think I know. And I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm just talking about in general. Because I can't tell you how many times I've been embarrassed by insisting something was so and then find out later that I was totally wrong. I know for some of you that never happens because you are totally right all the time. And if you know somebody that's always totally right, don't be pointing at anybody now. (laughs) I know you say that they're not really, but they think they are. Yeah. Treasure your knowledge of the truth, but be open to new understanding. Don't stop learning. I've had the privilege of knowing the Lord for 52 years now, and there's still so many other, so much more for me to learn, so much more for me to grow in. Don't become so inflexible you're not growing. You're not growing. The third one is this. Treasure your past walk with God, but be open to new experiences. Treasure your past walk with God, but be open to new experience. You know, I've heard so many of your testimonies. Things that God has done in your life, whether it was just last week, last month, last year, or decades ago. Ways that God broke into your life and called you from a past life that was destructive and gave you new life in Jesus Christ. Times when maybe you had this phenomenal experience during a certain revival or a certain church meeting or a certain uh, time when you were just alone with God and those things are wonderful and we should have them. 
and we should treasure them. I can look back in my own life to memories of when I committed my life to Christ, to when I was filled with the Holy Spirit, to certain services or events that I was involved in or, or events that I went to when I was a young person in youth group, retreats and conventions and, and experiences during worship when just God's presence. Treasure those, but be open to new experiences. You see, sometimes, especially as we get older, we have a tendency to live in the past. Well, remember when this happened. Remember, there's nothing wrong with that. But when we talk about it, it's as if nothing like that can ever happen again. Nothing like that will ever happen again, probably. And whereas the best is in the past. Can I tell you, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We need a new, fresh experience with Christ every day. And I'm not meaning you're going to have some big emotional thing every single... I'm just saying we need to be continuing to grow, not only in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word and His truth, but in our relationship with Him. We can't be so dependent on our previous knowledge and understanding and experience of God that we become closed to new discoveries and new growth. There's so many scriptures that talk about growing and and experiencing new things with God, but the one that I love is in Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. And this is actually some verses that take that that are found in the midst of this um, five, six chapter book, I think it is seven chapters, that's mourning because God's city has been destroyed. But in the midst of this morning, Jeremiah says this. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The only reason I mention this in the midst of a book that's mourning the fall of Jerusalem is to say, no matter how difficult life gets, no matter how tough things are that they come against, God is still there for you. God still has fresh mercy and faithfulness and grace for you. God wants to work in your life and on your behalf in the midst of whatever you might face every day. Don't block yourself off from it because you think the best is in the past. The future can't ever be as good. I want to tell you something. Yesterday's experience with God has tremendous value. It gives us strength. It builds our faith. But yesterday's experience with God by itself is not enough to get us through today and tomorrow. We've got to have a fresh touch from God, a fresh connection with God, a fresh encounter with God. Now, this fourth one is supremely important in light of all the others. This is the last one. Make sure that new ideas, methods, and experiences always line up with God's word. If you're beginning to think, Pastor, you're getting a little bit off base because those are the kind of ideas that people use to start accepting things the Bible say are wrong. No, that's not what I'm saying. When the Bible is clear on something, it's clear on something. When the Bible says this is sin, it's sin. And if we're involved in it, we need to repent and leave it behind. And we need to stand lovingly on that truth. When the Bible says very clearly, this is what you should do, that's what we should do. When the Bible says very clearly, this is what we shouldn't do, that's what we shouldn't do. But as I said, sometimes our lives and our Christianity is it has a lot of God's truth in it, but it's also bound up with a bunch of traditions and rituals and things that we've experienced in the past that the Bible has absolutely nothing to say about it. And we get bound by that, and sometimes, like the religious leaders, we start binding other people by it and say, well, you need to live this way too. 
You know, somebody ever tries to lay something on you and say, well, as a Christian, you should boo-boo-boo-boo. Say, well, okay, well, show me where it is in the Bible because if God said it, I'm going to live by it. That's, that's my heart. That's my desire. I'm going to live by it. But if God didn't say it, well, if that's good for you, that's good for you. But he, if, if he says it to me, that's good for me too. But if God's word doesn't say it, it doesn't apply to me. So make sure that the any new ideas, methods, experiences always line up with God's word. Don't just accept something because it's new and different. That's the way you're led the wrong direction. That's the way you're led the wrong path. That's the way you're led away from God, not closer to God. That's why, unfortunately, in some Christian settings in the church, they have drifted into approving things that God disapproves of and allowing things that God says shouldn't be allowed or doing things that God says shouldn't be done. We've got to stick with God's word. So we aren't deceived into believing lies and false doctrine. So we don't begin to focus on experiences more important than the truth or even have false experiences. You know, all these things are true of us, not only as individuals, but they're true of us as a church. We also need to avoid the mindset that says we've always done it that way or we've never done it that way. We need to be open to whatever God wants to do in us and through us to help us grow closer to him and to reach more people for him. See, here's the thing. God's message never changes. But God's methods and the methods to promote that message and to preach that, I preach as an old fashioned, to proclaim that message and to get it out there can change. Methods may change, but the message never will. I can tell you, as a guy who used to be young, I'm not old yet, but I'm older. And I've been in ministry for about 50, oh my goodness, yeah. No, 40 years. Okay. Feel better now. Anyway, (laughs) you know, as a young youth pastor and stuff, you know, always full of new ideas and new things. Let's do it. Let's do it. And as I get older, I find myself more resistant to new ideas. But I'm aware of that. And so I've learned that when something is suggested to me or whatever, to not just to me, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't think so. No. That does, I don't think that'll work. I don't, I don't like that. I did, I mean, whatever, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with the way I am, with the way things are. I've learned to say, okay, Lord, what do you want to do? What does your word say about it? Cause that's the first step. Is there something that would say no or yes or whatever? But if not, what do you think about it, God? Is this something that we could do? Is this something that we should try or, or whatever? So don't be inflexible. Don't be inflexible. Let me just uh, tell you a parable of my own as we wrap this up. You know, Jesus told parables, just little illustrations and stories from life. But if you could imagine a hurricane sweeping through Florida, which has happened many times, thankfully here in the central part of Florida, we get uh, not near as bad effect from hurricanes as the coasts. But this is a parable we can imagine because we have sat and watched our TV screens as a hurricane batters the coast. And afterward, you see the aftermath, you see the damage, you see all that kind of stuff. But think about it. When you see those pictures, you see those videos of the aftermath of a hurricane, what kind of trees get knocked over and destroyed? The ones that are inflexible. It could be a great oak. Now, if that oak is healthy, whole different aspect, it's probably going to be okay. 
But if there's a weakness in it, there's a right, you know, and it's, it's just, it's knocked right over. But what kind of trees survive? The flexible ones. The palm trees. <laughs> you know, I've seen pictures where palm trees are going, they're almost bending in half. You know, they're folding up into a, a corny. I don't know. And then you look at them later, it's like, they're just fine. They've learned to be flexible. So, let me just repeat something I said earlier. Don't let your spiritual pride, your preferences, your traditions, your knowledge, your experiences keep you from what God wants to do in you and through you today. You know, the sign of a healthy church, the sign of a healthy Christian is growth. It's freshness. It's newness. We all go through times when we feel a little stale. That's normal. That's natural. Times that are dry. But over a period of time, there's growth. There's a fresh newness to our relationship with God. You know, fellowship with God is an adventure that's never completed. And we need to be open to all that God has for us. He's never finished with us, so we never stop growing. And can I tell you, I believe that we have hardly begun to become the person that he desires us to be. So how do we respond to this? I just want to challenge you, because I was praying about this myself. Lord, how does this apply to me? How should I respond to this? I want to challenge you in response to this to just come to God and not just today as we wrap up the service. Say, God, I need you today. God, I want my walk with you today to be what you want it to be today. I don't want to just depend upon past experiences and past stuff. I want to learn more about you today. I want to walk closer today with you than I did before. I want a fresh experience with you. Lord, help me to be flexible. Help me to be pliable. Help me to be ready to respond to whatever you tell me today. Ready to do whatever you want me to do today. Open to everything that you have for me today. Growing and learning and being used by you. Help me not to become inflexible. Help me not to become dry. Help me not to become brittle. Help me not to get so caught up in things that are comfortable that I miss what you have for me and what you want to do in me and through me. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite my wife, Pastor Jan, and our elders to come. And we're going to conclude as we often do. Our worship team will lead us in a chorus. And the chorus, you're still going to do new wine, Nathaniel? Okay, the chorus is about new wine. How about how God's got new stuff to pour into us? And maybe that's how you want to respond today. You may look at your life and you say, you know what, God, I'm doing pretty good, you know. But Lord, just give me that new wine. Just pour that new stuff right into me. And not only into me, but through me. You may be here today and you don't have a relationship with God. I didn't touch really on that, but that's the main new thing God wants to do for you. Jesus came, died on the cross to pay the price for our sins so we could have new life. So we don't have to be bound by our sins anymore and separated from God. That's what our sins do. It says our sins separate us from God. But Jesus died to pay the price for our sins. And as we trust in him, our sins can be forgiven and we can have a relationship with God. So if you're here today or you're online and you don't have a relationship with God, that's the main thing you need to do. Say, God, I want a relationship with you. Please forgive me of my sins. The Bible says Jesus died to pay for it. I'm going to trust in that. I want a relationship with you. And if you do that, contact me or come down here so we can talk with you and pray with you and help you in that to grow in that relationship. 
But as we're responding, however God lays on your heart to respond to this message today, we're here to pray for you. If you need prayer for anything, it may be totally unrelated to the message. Maybe you need a touch for healing. Maybe you're going through a procedure this week. You want God to work in and through that. Maybe you want to come and ask for prayer for somebody else that you know or love and you want to join together for a need that's there. We're going to be down here for a couple of minutes while this song is sung. You respond and then I'll come back and close in prayer in just a couple of moments. Oh, that that would be our heart's cry. That we would be open to whatever God has for us. Jesus loves you so much. And he has such incredible plans for your life. But you got to stop listening to the lies of the devil. Because the devil's going to tell you, oh, no, 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 no. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. But he's a liar. He's out to kill, steal, and destroy you. But my Bible says, greater is he, King Jesus, than that rotten lying devil in this world. I just want to pray God's blessings over you and your family today. And I want to challenge you, if you're watching online, if you have not committed your life to Jesus Christ, you heard the words of our pastor today. I want to challenge you. If there's someone in this room today that you're like, well, I kind of, I wanted to do that, but I don't know. I want to challenge you. Today is the day of salvation. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. He wants to work in you and through you. He wants to bless you. He wants to encourage you. Father God, we bless you today. We praise you. We honor you and we magnify you. And Lord, I just speak blessings over everyone under the sound of my voice. And God, for that one that's questioning, God, are you really real? I pray in the name of Jesus that you would make yourself known to this person that is asking that question today. That they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God, how real you are. And you are a good, good father. We praise you, Lord. We bless you and we honor you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.